Good day, everybody. Tom and KJ with you. This is Front Row Knowles, post-Boston College edition. Uh, we record these in the morning now, and it was a long day, so I sound a little hoarse or uh, like I haven't woken up, and uh, both of those are true. Keith, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. I'm doing well, but I will tell our listeners that uh, if they could see you, you do not look like a horse. You just look like Tommy. Well, thanks. I appreciate that, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is why you tune into this show on a fine Sunday to hear the humor of one Keith Jones. Uh, KJ, this was uh, we, we've, we've talked a lot about box checking over the last year or so in terms of taking incremental steps, and this was another one. And for Florida State to come out and handle business the way they did against Boston College, I know Boston College is terrible, but that was impressive. They didn't let them hang around. They took the opening kickback. I mean, it was – I looked up, and they had had the ball for like a minute and 30 seconds, and they were winning 14 nothing. I mean, it's hard to do that. <laughs> Florida State dominated time, dominated time of possession in that first quarter, as you mentioned. I think it's like 11 minutes to four minutes. Um, first half, I mean, I know the first quarter, but first half, I want to focus on the defense first. Boston College never crossed midfield. Uh, they punted four times, I believe, and had two interceptions. Um, that was impressive. And, and FSU's defense would end up holding Boston College to right at about 250 yards total. That was the thing that was impressive to me. And then the second part, Tommy, um, you know, we've talked about buy-in by the kids and buy-in by the players and listening to the coaches and uh, that type of thing. How about the buy-in from Florida State's fans? I, I did not anticipate this being a sellout. Last I'd heard on Tuesday or Wednesday, there were plenty of tickets remaining. And then come the end of the week, it's a hard sellout at 79.5. And you and I have talked about this. The, the loudest I remember Doak was when uh, Oklahoma came in as number one in the country in the early teens. Uh, but that, uh, that crowd last night rivaled, in my opinion. Yeah, it was, a, it was a great crowd and family weekend, part of the reason that they sold so many tickets. But the success on the field is another part of the reason. The students took their tickets. It was a Saturday night game. Very noticeable as I was driving into the stadium, which – Obviously, I go pretty early given my duties, but the traffic was backed up a lot further than it normally is four hours before a game. Uh, all that was good. Um, I, we don't really need to, to go drive by drive or break this down too much. We can do general observations. You're right. The defense played well. That's a bad Boston College uh, offensive line. I don't want to minimize what the defense did. I do want to just acknowledge that BC's have got all kinds of issues up front. And it looked to me like Jerkovic, who's a good quarterback, he's already seeing ghosts, and he's in game four of the season. I mean, he came out in his first pass of the game. Maybe it was his second pass, was a yard behind Zay Flowers and turns into an interception. He, I mean, you can understand why, but he's just uh, already kind of got happy feet back there because there's no line blocking for him. And I felt so bad because I, I've got a great deal of respect for the Boston College program. You and I have done a number of games up at Chestnut Hill in that little stadium when they have gone toe-to-toe with Florida state. And there's been times when FSU over the history of being in the ACC, we're lucky to get out of there with a victory, always a good running attack, big offensive lineman. Uh, you know, I, I was doing a little, don't, don't fault me for this, but doing a little prep work before you and I came up and started taping this. And there were two sets of numbers that jumped out at me again, commenting on the Florida state defense and echoing the struggles of Boston college offensively. BC averaged 2.8 yards per rushing attempt, but they only averaged 4.8 yards per passing attempt. 
uh, Djokovic only threw for 105, I think, before they brought the other kid in. And, and I, I just felt bad for he and with Flowers uh, because both of those guys, there was talk about them coming out early and entering the draft. They chose to stay. And back to your offensive line conversation, they had one of their key offensive linemen that declared early for the draft and didn't get drafted. And so it's just been a, a bunch of things that have, that have hurt and uh, hindered that Boston College program. To your point about the yards per uh, attempt, so Zay Flowers is their best offensive weapon. And I think Jeff Colhane, I don't recall the exact year, but I think he said Zay Flowers is going to be the first Boston College receiver drafted, I think he said since the late 1980s, if you think about that. But regardless, he's, he's an NFL-type receiver. But And they targeted him 13 times because he's their best player. He had seven catches for 45 yards because the only pass they can complete to him is a two-yard slant or dig route or cross the line can't hold up long enough to get him downfield. That's all they could do is run him horizontal. You know, they couldn't get vertical. And and if you know football and pay attention to football, you can tell that he is good. Yeah. Uh, he, he'll play a lot on Sundays. And, and if he stays healthy for a number of years, there's no question. So let's, since we started talking about Florida state's defense, let's continue this. Obviously Jordan Travis playing eight days after what we all feared might be a season ending injury, heck even career ending based on the way he was pounding the turf in Louisville. We know that's the story. We'll get back to that. Defensively, the linebacker position, I talked to Kalen Deloach after the game. He had seven tackles. Uh, he had a smile. He was pleased that he didn't have to chase somebody like Jaden Daniels or Malik Cunningham around and, and try to play spy on those guys, different kind of quarterbacks. So he liked that. Uh, Omarion Cooper, who has not been himself, Duke Cooper, played four snaps against Louisville. Obviously, he was healthy. They put him out there. They started him. He had an interception on the first series. He played most of the way before garbage time. That's pretty significant because he's their best cornerback. And uh, the guy on the other side has been playing well. So if you get Cooper back, you like that as we go into this stretch. And it looks like he is back. Plus, you've got a defense, again, acknowledging the uh, handicaps that BC offensively was was uh, undergoing. You're doing it without Fabian Lovett. You're doing it without Verse. Um, and back to, to, to the Loach. I think he's made the most improvement game one through game four of anybody on that defensive side. I mean, he, you know, they talk about the light coming on and I don't know what his light switch was, but, but I mean, he has just got a nose for the ball. He's very fast. Um, and, and he's just improved a bunch. I really like the way he played Saturday. Yeah. Night. I, he, he improved a bunch last year. I didn't realize just how fast he is. Maybe I, it was, I think we said this, it was in new Orleans in the dome when he was spying Jaden Daniels and he triggered from 20 yards away and his closing time or speed was ridiculous. He's really playing well. Um, so you get some guys back because of the lopsided nature of the game. Uh, and the score, you got to play a lot of bodies, a lot of reps, and that's good. When Florida State was humming in the dynasty days, that used to happen all the time. The last five, six years, you've been down to the wire every game, and you're not getting a chance to play third team or so. And I'm talking up front in the secondary, the freshman corners played. Uh, really, uh, Omar Graham played at linebacker, freshman D tackles. I mean, so that part is all good. To your point about the injuries, and I don't know when these guys will be back, and Coach Norvell doesn't disclose a lot of information on that front. I do know that as I walked past, and this was in the second half, 
many of these guys wouldn't have been in even if they're healthy. But there was one bench in particular, and I look at it, and sitting there is Fabian Lovett, Jared Verse, Robert Cooper, who went out and got dinged. And that's another one. That's two starting tackles if he can't go. Amari Gaynor and Malcolm Ray. So all five of those guys. Now, Malcolm Ray uh, was dressed and played in the first half. By the time the game got out of hand and at halftime, he changed and was back in street clothes. But that's a lot of talented football players. And if you're asking me right now, how's FSU going to fare in these next three weeks? Well, tell me if those guys are going to play, because that's a, that goes a long way to answering those that questions. And the other part of it, uh, and, and I don't want to read too much into this, but you've made mention it annoys media folks, uh, former players uh, that that, you know, the staff will not talk about injuries. Uh, I always thought that was part of the game, but uh, evidently I'm too old school for that. But given the lack of information and the fact that we all thought that, you know, Jordan Travis was done for the year in air quotes, maybe those guys come back sooner as opposed to later. What do you think? Yeah, well, I've said this many a time, Keith, from all the years I've been on the sidelines, which is a lot. You really cannot tell anything by a player's reaction in the moment. No. It is – Jordan Travis is not the first guy who looked as if uh, a, a truck drove over his leg, and here he is playing eight days later. And and I don't want to suggest this is what's going to happen the other way, but guys who walk off under their own power, they look like they're okay. By the time they MRI them, they find a tear, and the next thing you know, that guy's out for a while. So – I've seen enough to know you really can't draw conclusions on any of it uh, to Jordan Travis. We can, well, well, before we transition to Jordan, Keith, maybe this is trying to paint a glasses half full picture, but if FSU doesn't have some of those guys on the defensive front, as they go into this stretch for the wake forest game, I would argue that the wake forest game out of the three upcoming is the, is the game in which I don't want to say you don't, you, you don't need them. You do need them. But because Wake Forest is is sort of the little engine that could, uh, if you don't have all your frontline guys, Wake is beating you based on pre- precision and not making mistakes, and you got to be disciplined to beat them. So you don't have to have the world's best defensive line to beat them. You've got to play fundamentally sound football. Does that make sense where I'm going with that? In other words, if you don't have Lovett, if you didn't have Verse, you just got to make sure who's in there knows how to handle that mesh point, and you could still hold your own against them. I, I do agree with you. I will acknowledge, because uh, I did watch the, the late game almost in its entirety, um, that they have taken that mesh point pause to a whole new level, Tommy. I mean, it's not one second or one and a half seconds. Sometimes it's three seconds. And that means that whoever is in there, you have got to hold your ground. It's very dangerous to take a side or take a gap because that running back has time to watch and see and go in another direction. So you're right. Discipline play is going to be unbelievably important against Wake. And that quarterback and those receivers, if you even stop the run, you better be prepared to play some pass defense because Wake's got it all. And they're the little engine that could, but that's a big engine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. At some point, at some point, the world will stop disrespecting Wake Forest, right? I Correct. feel like no matter what they do, there's always, well, it's only Wake. I guess the point I'm trying to make is that compared to NC State and Clemson, NC State and Clemson are going to be better physically at the line of scrimmage offensively and defensively. So if you're going to go to battle with some combination of 
Cooper and Lovett and Verse and Ray missing. Wake's probably the one of the three you would choose for that. But that said, who knows who will be back uh, and when. All right, let's transition to Jordan Travis. Uh, when Jordan went down at Louisville, they put him in a boot uh, to treat his ankle. And then lo and behold, he shows up on Saturday, and it was Saturday morning when Mike Norvell announced that he was going to start Travis in a knee brace. And so I think what happened there is heat of the moment. Uh, he probably tweaked both at Louisville. They were concentrating on the ankle, and the next day Jordan came in for treatment, and uh, lo and behold, it turns out, you know, his knee was a little ding too, and so thus the transition. But that said, I don't know what percent you'd put him at, but the mobility was still there. I mean, he evaded a safety and turned that into a positive play. He had maybe his best run of the year at some point on that one scramble. It didn't look like it was hindering him very much. Well, all he did was throw for a career-high 321 yards. And by the way, on 16 completions. So according to my Wildwood math, that's a little over 20 yards per completion. Uh, that's off the charts. He made good decisions. I, I don't recall a single one of his 26 passes that I would say was a bad throw. You, I don't think anything jumped out at me there. Um, I just like the fact that how he's conducted himself. In the second half, he was very, very active on the sidelines, spent a lot of time with his offensive linemen, even the second-team offensive line. Um, I mean, he is rounding himself into a true team leader. Um, I think the brace was more to make the training staff uh, comfortable so that they didn't get hollered at by the coaching staff. That's just an opinion on my part. Because uh, he sure didn't look like he was handicapped very much at all. I'd say he was at 95, 96% ease. Yeah, he he looked good. Uh, in terms of bad throws, I don't. There were there were none that that really got in harm's way. I thought the first couple throws he made in the game were not as precise as what he's been, which really is a a tip of the cap to how precise he's been. <clears throat> but more than that, probably he he didn't practice the full amount this week. And so a little rust came off, and then he got in the flow of the game, and, and he was fine and, and really played well. Can we talk about the fact that – let's set this up, Keith. Not only is Jordan the best quarterback in the state, I mean, Miami, and we'll get to this because he's your former teammate, but Miami benched its all-world starting quarterback yesterday in the first quarter against Rick Stockstill's team. They benched him. Mm -hmm. We'll come back to that. So Jordan's far and away the best quarterback in the state. I think we have to have the conversation that he might be one of the better quarterbacks in the country right now. And then the caveat, Keith, is that two years ago when he started becoming the guy in the COVID year, we had Devin Travis on the show, his brother, to address the question, can Jordan Travis actually throw the football? Do you remember this conversation oh, two yeah. years ago? Oh, yeah. All Jordan did was run and people said, well, he can't throw. He can't throw. He doesn't have an arm. He can't throw at all. That was two years ago. We literally were questioning if the guy could physically throw the football. Think about well, that. Agreed. But let's remember something. And Coach Norvell, I don't know if he would admit this publicly, but Coach Norvell in one of his press conferences after practice in the last couple of weeks, somebody asked him a little bit about mechanics or there was a question that had to do. And, and Coach Norvell said, we didn't do anything with his throwing motion. All we did was work on his footwork, and, and that's what he's improved on. There's never been anything wrong with his arm, and that's what Devin was telling us. 
but he had to learn how to do his footwork properly instead of throwing against his body and start stepping into the throw. And by the way, depending on how much he's had that brace on, that could be a reason why those first couple of three passes weren't like it is because that's just different. Um, but you're right. He has improved and whether it is uh, he could throw the ball and needed footwork or whether he needed to fix everything, it doesn't matter. He's now fixed it and he's throwing well as to I, I whether think- he's as to whether he's the best quarterback. I, I put things in, in, in perspective. Richardson is a much more talented quarterback, the Florida quarterback. He's bigger, he's faster, he's stronger. But Jordan is the better tech technician. He's the better. Um, he can go through his progressions. Uh, he's probably better at pre-snap decisions. Um, he's a better quarterback, even though he might not be the most gifted. Certainly is amongst the leaders in the ACC. And if he continues to perform, I would agree with you. We get into to, to game seven, game eight, game 10. If FSU continues their success, he will start getting some national notoriety. Well, he's going to get that. The next three weeks, he's got that opportunity because he's playing Sam Hartman and Devin Leary and DJU from Clemson. And those yep. are all guys more heralded and on the ACC quarterback list at the start of the year. Everybody had those guys ahead of Travis. So the one thing he doesn't have, is just the gaudy stats. I mean, Hartman threw six touchdown passes yesterday, but Florida State scored almost as many points as what Wake Forest did. You know what I mean? Because Florida, Wake's struggling to run the football, and Florida State's a balanced attack. So Jordan throws for a career-high passing yards with one touchdown, and I'm not even looking at his season stats. But, you know, for him to really be revered nationally, he'd need to put up some five touchdown games and run for three. And I don't really care if he gets gaudy stats or not. What he's doing is he's executing the offense and the, and the team believes in him and Florida state is scoring and playing competent football. And, uh, and the one area where he definitely would be on the very short list, Keith, when he moves out of the pocket and is scrambling in terms of ability to keep his eyes downfield and throw an accurate pass off balance on the run, he, he's really doggone good. Especially moving to his left and in and, and, and the late Kim Hammond, uh, and I got into a really heated conversation one time. Uh, you know, Kim was a very good quarterback at Florida State um, well before my time. He's passed away now. Great man. And I was talking about the difficulty of rolling out to the left for a right-handed quarterback. And Kim, Kim got all excited. He says, it's not hard. It's not hard. You just got to square your shoulders around. And if you go back and look at a couple of, uh, of Travis's throws, when he's running to his left, he, he intentionally gets that, that lead shoulder back around and is able to deliver the ball. See, most guys throw it almost sidearm or three-quarters almost against their body when they're left running to the left. You get that shoulder tucked back in and get that front shoulder down, you can put some zip on the ball, uh, but you got to do it intentionally. There was one pass. It was in the LSU game. I think it was to Johnny Wilson. It's exactly what you just described. Exactly. I know exactly lap. what you want to talk about. He plants his – I even I even showed my son when we were watching. I said, did you see how he planted and squared that up? Because it was a perfect throw to Wilson. And you're right. Normally you're off balance and that float throw sails a little bit, but, but, but he does do that. So bottom line, eight days ago we thought we might be seeing Tate for a lot of the season, and here's Jordan playing eight days later, and that's a great thing. Um, okay, and – I don't know if you'd consider this a positive and a negative, Keith, but I'll throw it out there. I, I thought they would have more success 
running the football early in this game. I thought they'd be able to open up more holes. Now, maybe BC was so focused just on the running back because they knew that Travis was not going to keep the ball, and he really hasn't done that this year. So maybe that part of the uh, the read option, you know, if you're not having to defend that, it makes it a little bit easier. But having said that, Trey Benson is starting to hit another level, Keith. I mean, all of a sudden, Trey, I mean, and Treshawn Ward went into that game leading the ACC in rushing, and we come out of it talking about how good is Trey Benson. He He breaks two tackles every time he touches the football certainly doesn't go down on initial contact. There's no question about that. Um, my frustration with Trey is I haven't heard a nickname yet. we got to get him a nickname. You know, if he's going to equal Kermit, and I'm sure our listeners have read this, they talked about it, but that's the, the first time that Florida State has had a kickoff return since the 2013 National Championship game in the Rose Bowl uh, with Kermit. we got to get Trey a nickname. And then the other thing is we, we talked about the number of uh, broken tackles against Duquesne by the running backs. We've got to get sports information to go back and, and, and get some graduate assistance help. And we need to start charting the number of broken tackles by Florida State's big three running backs because they all break tackles. And uh, I, I want that number to start going up because I think we're going to be absolutely shocked. Uh, and that's what you're alluding to about the number of times um, I know we've got the yards after contact and, and that's listed and you can read about it, but I want to know the number of considered broken tackles because I think this trio is right up there. Well, well, somebody tracks it. I don't know for the trio, but I, I think it was either before this week's game or going into Louisville. Benson was second nationally among running backs in terms of broken tackles. And he had half the carries as the guy who was number one. So, I mean, ben, Benson is right there, but, uh, good guy. I talked to him twice this week, once uh, for the pregame interview and then once last night after the game. Uh, he's from Mississippi. His hometown is 160, 180 miles from where Cam Akers grew up. Cam was from Clinton, and I think Trey is from Greenville, Mississippi, maybe. I don't know my Mississippi geography, but I did look it up, and they're about two hours apart. But I asked him, given the age difference, if he if he knew Cam – he was familiar with him. He said he's talked to him on the phone. He's never met him in person. But when he was in middle and high school was when Cam was at FSU. And so bottom line, he's grown up following Cam, well aware of all the high school records that Cam set because Benson then chased a lot of those down. So I don't know when Cam's bye week is for the Rams this year, but we need to get him back to Tallahassee so he can officially meet Trey Benson because that's a lot of talent from the state of Mississippi toting the football. You know, the other thing about Trey, and again, this is old school, and, and I've had some conversations with, with guys of my era, and this is going to sound really old. I apologize, listeners. But the other thing about Trey is he doesn't celebrate. You know, the old adage, act like you've been there. He's a very, very, appears to be a very mature, older soul from the standpoint that, that he made the move to Florida State to get some playing time and to prove what he is and who he is. And he's not about show. He's not about celebration. He's about work. And, uh, you know, if you're into that, like I am, you really respect that because he does. He literally does act like he's been there before. This goes back to a broader point when you talk about the celebrations, Keith. It has been noticeable since the Duquesne game. If you're at the stadium, 
don't watch the guy who scored the touchdown. Watch the sideline celebrate for the guy who scored the touchdown. Because this team right now, the guys off the field are happier for the guy who scored than the guys on the field or the guy who scored himself. And that goes back to that culture word that we've talked about. But I see it firsthand. I mean, when Benson scored his third touchdown, the first guys there, there's Trayshawn Ward, there's Toa Fili, there's Rodney Hill, there's everybody that's on the bench to congratulate him. And it's not always that way. Sometimes it's a little more, hey, let me just give a little a pat here. This is sincere. I mean, they are bought in. Well, and, I, and that goes back to your leader in Coach Norvell. He is firmly committed to his system. Uh, we saw that in the in that 30, 45-second sound bite that we all talked about needs to go out to every pr- prospective recruit uh, in the country. Um, just talking about the culture and, and the, the ability to work and work leads to success. And I can't even parrot all the other things that he said, but uh, the conviction about him and that, you know, that starts at the top and it trickles down. There were still, I'm sorry, particularly on the defensive side, there's still some times that guys are a little too excited to bring some attention to themselves. Um, I think that's just today's culture. Maybe it'll tone down a little bit. But again, back to my point, uh, I, I could play with Benson. I could fight for Benson. I mean, that's a guy that just works. It's not about show. It's not about look at me. It's about I'm doing my job. You do yours and we'll win. And I can get into that. Are you aware of how significant his knee injury was at Oregon, by the way? I, I, I think we have um, we don't understand how significant it is because of how well he's come back but it was a two-year thing that people have forgotten about. I'm going to miss some initials here, but when you ask him about it, he tore his ACL, his PCL, his MCL, his hamstring, and a couple other things in his knee. I mean, it was a total reconstruction. They had to reattach everything. And now you see that guy run, you wouldn't even know that he that he had a knee injury. But that exactly. is uh, – and so really he's only four games into his college career. He spent two years at Oregon and had – a handful of carries because he was hurt the whole time. So, I mean, he's basically four games in and the game's starting to slow down. He's starting to understand it a little bit better. Uh, Really bright future ahead for him. Just looking at the stat sheet, Keith, I know it was mop-up time, but, oh, by the way, Tate went three for three for 29 yards. I mean, so you get a little confidence against Louisville, and then all of a sudden maybe things slow down for him too. Well, there was a very interesting article in the Tallahassee Democrat. Uh, If you haven't read it, you need to go back and look at it. It was a conversation with Tate's father, who coached him in high school in Valdosta and now is coaching at another school. And, and I'm going to paraphrase, and, and the, hopefully the, the Tate and his dad will, will think I got it almost right. Basically, what his dad said is that while he is very low-key and even killed, he is so competitive that sometimes it gets the better of him. And his ability to go in and immediately calm down has sometimes been a challenge. And so he goes in against Louisville, doesn't perform well in that first series, but gets back into the locker room. And as Coach Norbell said, took a deep breath, comes back out and is on fire. And basically what his dad said is, I think he's now over the hump. And, and if you look at a very small sample size, three for three for 29 yards and every ball on, on where it needs to be, maybe, just maybe, that is the case. 
you, you know, one of the things they did too on that third and short, uh, he he faked the handoff and kept it. He pulled it and ran for nine or ten yards, and everybody was shocked. Nobody knew he had the football. That's a way to get him into the game and calm the nerves too. Like just let Correct. him carry it and get hit, and then boom, then he takes a breath and you play football. So yeah, I don't yeah. I don't know if that was part of the thinking or if it was just everybody on BC assumed it would be the running back and that was an easy way to get the yard, but either way, that's what they did. And it was successful. Well, and the other part in, in, you know, Seminole nation is learning about it, but you know, he's, he's tall and slender and he takes long strides. So you don't think he's terribly athletically gifted or fast, but that's not the case. He is very quick and straight line. He's very athletic. He hasn't done it yet. I'm not recommending that he does, but when he scored touchdowns on the ground in high school, he used to do backflips. Uh, I don't, I don't, I'm not advocating that he do that again, but he is a very, very athletic guy. He just doesn't look the part, but he certainly can play the part. Let's finish up on the offense here. Robert Scott Jr., who got hurt late in the Louisville game or second half against Louisville, did not dress. Uh, Darius Washington started that tackle position. I I don't think it's going to be too long term, but I don't know when he's back in terms of getting your starting left tackle back. It would be nice if that was sooner rather than later. And and uh, we haven't mentioned the young receivers. Uh, this is a good and a bad too. Darian Williamson, all of a sudden, I don't know where he came from. Unfortunately, he left the game injured. And so despite the fact that Williamson had five catches for 98 yards, I don't know how long he's going to be. And I asked to interview him in the post game, and uh, they said, well, he left the game injured. I, I missed that. I didn't even realize that. So. Uh, but also you had the touchdown to Portier. And so this this receiving core, which was much maligned uh, the last couple of years, all of a sudden it's like, well, there's not enough balls to go around for as many good guys as there are to catch the, the passes right now. That's what it, It's crazy what a 180 shift that's been. You know, Tommy, I, I've spent some time talking to some of the boys that played wide receiver during my time and a little bit after. And, and kind of an unwritten theme that came up is um, – until you learn how to block, you can't be a complete receiver. In other words, if you're, all you're worried about is running routes and catching, you know, you're not going to get snaps. They're, they're not going to play you. But once you learn to block and you show that, that you are a complete player, then, then things just start happening for you. The adage one of my, my teammates gave me is it's kind of like a freshman running back. You can have all the talent in the world, but if you don't learn blitz pickup, you ain't getting any snaps because we're not getting our quarterback killed because you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. When you go back and look at these receivers and how they block, and there's just something about that. When the ball comes their way after they've worked so hard, they're not going to let that opportunity go by them. And Portier made a great catch. I mean, that, that was a tough catch for that touchdown, and he made it. Because you go back and look at the snaps before that, he was a complete receiver. Same thing with Johnny Wilson. He didn't have big numbers uh, last night. But on that long, um, uh, I can't remember if it was a run or a tunnel screen, he's blocking 50 yards downfield. That's when your receiving core starts really, really showing out. I was going to make that point about Johnny Wilson. So he's, you know, if you line up NFL scouts, the guy they're drooling over on the FSU roster, at the receiver position will be Johnny Wilson. Well, he's the best blocker among the group. So if you got your best receiver and he's a roll up the sleeves, get dirty, let's make a block for a living guy. 
how does that permeate to the rest of the team? And then you think about it and the best running back on the team, probably Trey Benson is going to change this discussion, but Treshawn Ward's a former walk-on. And then your starting quarterback is a guy who transferred after being fourth string at Louisville. And nobody even knew who Jordan Travis was until ironically against Boston college when Willie was here and we were in Chestnut Hill, all yep. of a sudden they bring him in and he scores two touchdowns and BC didn't even know who the guy was. None of us did. And so you got those kind of blue collar guys who are your best players at those positions that permeates throughout the whole segment room and the whole team. And let's give the blue collar guys a little bit of credit. Time now for our prime reading bank performance of the game. And I'm going to highlight one Trey Benson had that 93 yard kickoff return to start the game, finished the game with 10 carries for 78 yards, two touchdowns, 7.8 yard average. Uh, added one reception for six yards as well. And uh, as we've said, didn't celebrate. Uh, old school, old soul. Um, Trey Sean's getting a little of the, of the highlight, and Trey wants some of his, and I'm sure Rodney and, and Toafilio will be right behind him. Speaking of performance, Primary and Bank has consistently been, na- been named one of the best banks to work for by American Banker Magazine. Want to bank where they greet you by name? Smiling faces off you coffee and a cookie when you walk in the door. Well, that's what I call great performance. Try my bank, Prime Meridian Bank. Member FDIC offices, Tallahassee, Crawford Field, and Lakeland, or you can visit them on the web at trymybank.com. Keith, we'll have time on our regular show to dive deeper into this as, as we wrap things up in the next few minutes. General thoughts on Wake Forest. I watched a lot of that Clemson game. First of all, Wake's going to score points but their secondary can be exposed and, and, and Clemson, like there's a lot of talk right now about how DJU is coming of age and he, he had a great game. He threw five touchdowns. I didn't watch enough of it to, to know how much he actually progressed, but I do know that wake was without its top corner in that game. Who's week to week. Their top nickelback went down two weeks ago out for their year. And their, and their second, uh, the guy who's starting in his place at nickel was out yesterday in his week to week too. I think Ngata for Clemson is 6-3. And the week before against Liberty, the guy who had seven catches, including two touchdowns, I forget his name, he's 5-8. So I'm saying all that to say this, Johnny Wilson is going to have a huge game against Wake Forest next week. I think the receiving core in general can, because that secondary can be exposed. Now, we'll talk about the other side of it. Florida State secondary maybe can get exposed by Hartman too. But FSU is going to put up some numbers next week on Wake, I would think. Both will. And I think one of the interesting matchups is the Wake receivers. Maybe they don't have the one big star that, you know, you, you talk about, um, but they've got four or five or even six guys that can catch passes, which means you've got to be disciplined in what you do. And it'll be interesting to see how Adam, uh, you know, uh, defense coordinator Fuller uh, chooses when to blitz, when to be in zone, when to be in man, when to be in press man. It's going to be a high-scoring chess-type game or affair. Uh, and and it's, it's slotted. If you haven't heard, it'll be a 3.30 kickoff on ABC. They announced that uh, Sunday morning. And um, I think a lot of the nation's going to be watching this one, despite the fact that Wake fell to Clemson last time. And I hate to bring this up, but it's sort of the elephant in the room, Keith. I mean, if, if it comes down to a kick, Florida State's <clears throat> kicker is struggling right now. Wake's got a kid. I think he's a freshman. 
who might be perfect on the year or is pretty good. We don't need to, to dive into that now. Um, but that is that Noel fans know that's in the back of their head right now. And, and hopefully Ryan can uh, get his head straight as he goes into this stretch. Uh, it, it's obvious we need to point this out, but you need to stay tuned to the weather forecast because there is a storm in the box that if it's not coming to Tallahassee, it's coming to Florida somewhere. And so uh, there will be repercussions. Look like looks like maybe Wednesday or Thursday, I guess it would it would get through and we'll just have to see. But uh, there is a chance that something could move around on this football game, Keith, just stating the obvious. Well, and uh, on Saturday, we saw a hurricane sputter out and didn't do very well. And as you alluded to earlier, we want to just give a big shout out uh, to Rick Stockstill and the Middle Tennessee State Moccasins. They go down to, to Hard Rock and put 45 on the Hurricanes. Now, that's not good for the ACC, uh, but that's really good for Rick and for Brent and for those kids. Um, and I'm hoping, I'm hoping they get an opportunity to celebrate that and enjoy it. And uh, I texted Rick last night, and I just basically said, congrats, big win. Because much like Trey Benson, Stockstill was never a celebrator either. He's, he's a matter of fact, go about your business. And uh, that's a huge win for that program, huge win. It was, and I'm, I'm only going to correct one point, Keith. They're not the moccasins, they're the Blue Raiders. So we're going to get that right since he just beat the uh, – Where did the, I uh, read moccasins? I I don't, there's another Tennessee team. Is that UT Chattanooga? Maybe I, I don't know. I, my bad, Rick. I apologize for for our uh, our younger listeners, Keith. Uh, and I'm going to put myself in this bucket because uh, while I've known you for a lot of years, I didn't grow up watching you play. Uh, fill us in on on Rick and and how much he played and when he played at FSU. Just a little background there. He played behind uh, Wally and Jimmy. Uh, he was in my signing class. He was out Ferdinand Beach. His, his dad was a coach. And um, he paid his dues, um, held on extra points, uh, ran the scout team, and then became the starting quarterback in 1980. That's the year we went 10-1. and He redshirted. So my last year was 80. Rick played one more year in 81, and he helped uh, engineer that Oktoberfest uh, scenario where Florida State played five consecutive road games in the month of October against the likes of Ohio State and others. Uh, finished. You correct me again. If I'm messing up moccasins, I may be messing up one loss, but I think they were three and two during the Oktoberfest. And Rick was right in the middle of it, uh, has coached um, his entire career uh, at the college level and has been at Middle Tennessee State for, gosh, 10, 12 years, maybe even 14 years. I may be even selling him short there. Uh, but he and Brent Barak, who became his best friend, uh, Brent handles uh, offensive line, I believe it is, have just done a wonderful job up in Murfreesboro and, um, and uh, consistently performed. And, uh, again, going down to Miami and beating – first time, first time MTSU has won against an AP top 10 uh, team in the history of the program. And so just hats off to them. Couldn't be more excited for them. Yeah, what a win. And thank you for the historical perspective there. Uh, it is UT Chattanooga that's the moccasins. I just, I just looked that up. Uh, well, I was close. Do I get credit for being close? Hey, you get credit for the history lesson on Rick Stockstill because there's a lot of <laughs> folks who had no idea that the Middle Tennessee State coach was an FSU guy. Yeah. Uh, we knew that. You knew that. He actually, for longtime listeners of this show, has been a guest on Front Row Bowls previously. He has. I point out as well. This How about one more stat for you? What? Go ahead. How about one more stat for you? Okay. I couldn't believe this. Um, I just couldn't believe this. Punter, our Australian punter, 
100 kicks without a single touchback and and then gets his first touchback and it sneaks into the right corner of that south end zone by about a half a yard. I've never heard of that before. A hundred consecutive kicks without a touchback. His his very first game, he had a touchback. And and you're talking about Master Mono. And Master yeah, Mono, I was standing yes. right on that part of the sideline. You saw it on TV, Keith. I mean, the football is oblong. If it bounces just a little differently, it kicks right and it goes out at the half inch line instead of going into the end zone. That's how close he was to keeping that streak going. Yep. And I tell you, I've, I've gotten an education and, and spent a lot more time uh, thinking about this, the, the Australian form of kicking. Uh, but that, that stat is, is unbelievable uh, because yeah. one of the things that, you know, if you can get them inside the 20, get them inside the 10, that is a huge advantage for your defense. And when that ball, you know, clearly goes into the touchback and it comes out to the 20, it's almost a disappointment. Uh, so I wanted to make sure Mastermano got credit for that because that, that, that's, that's off the charts. Shout out to John Papuchis and the special teams, by the way, who were much maligned a year ago. And now we're four games in. They were already one of the top units in terms of uh, if you rank special teams across the country this year. A couple of muff punts they recovered, a couple of block kicks against LSU. You return a kick for a touchdown for the first time in nine years on a Saturday night and the place just goes bananas. And I mean, Boston college might as well have gotten on the bus when Benson crossed into the end zone, nine seconds into the game or whatever time was left on the clock because it was over. It was over that quickly. Yeah. Well, the only two criticisms, we'll talk more about this on our Wednesday show, but the only two criticisms got to get better on third down. Now under Mike Norvell, it might not matter because he goes for it so many times on fourth down. So, so the traditional way of measuring those statistics may be a little off. Um, and, and, and the other part of it is um, the injuries. Um, you know, this is the time of year when uh, injuries start to mount and that depth becomes very, very important. And you saw some kids uh, playing at the defensive end position. Briggs had a pretty good game. Uh, we've talked about the Loach coming to his own. Uh, you talked about getting Duke back at the corner position. What are you going to do with the offensive line if you still have some people out? Uh, this is the time where depth and, um, and continuity and, and getting some snaps in the Duquesne game and getting some snaps here against Boston College hopefully plays dividends as you get into the – we'll just call it the big three coming up with Wake and, and NC State and Clemson. All right, we are uh, finished for now. We'll do this again on Wednesday. Uh, until then, Keith, uh, have a good week. Knowles fan, thanks for uh, tuning in to uh, Front Row Knowles. Talk to you soon.